the renowned historian of science, Thomas Kuhn, described how scientific fields undergo periods of what he calls normal science, where researchers work within an accepted framework, a paradigm, like seeing Jesus solely as a prophet or a king. However, over time, anomalies emerge that the prevailing paradigm cannot explain, like Jesus claiming divine authority. This leads to a state of crisis with the alternatives proposed until a new paradigm shift emerges through a revolution, like seeing Jesus as the Son of God. The new paradigm cannot be directly compared to the old, representing an incommensurable change in the worldview. The worldview has totally shifted. Kuhn shows how progress involves these paradigm shifts through crisis, much like the Pharisees clung to old paradigms of the Messiah, while Jesus ushered in a new, shifting people's understanding through his authoritative yet often mystifying claims in John 8. The gospel, the gospels occupy that crisis period before a new paradigm begins to emerge, which is, it's always a very tumultuous time. Just as scientists test theories through experimentation, so too do the Pharisees examine the claims of Christ through their own system to verify them. In our text this morning, we get a glimpse into the method that the Pharisees used to scrutinize Jesus' claims, his testimony. However, they conclude that Jesus is not to be trusted. But Jesus pushes back against their assumptions and he exposes major flaws in their thinking. And he does that by highlighting their inconsistencies and their use of their own system, the Scriptures. He points them back to the Word of God to show how their assumptions about Him are false. You see, John refers to these claims as Jesus' testimony. And the question we need to ask is, how can we trust Jesus' testimony? And upon closer examination of this conflict, it becomes evidence that Jesus claims his testimony, they do, in fact, meet the scriptural qualifications for something that can be accepted as true, and therefore, it should be trusted. If you are able, please stand with me as we read from the Gospel of John. I'm going to back up and read one verse prior, which is not printed in your bulletin, but the rest of the text is printed there for you. But I would encourage you to listen to the word of God. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from. And where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge. 
But I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, Therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. O God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, your word is trustworthy. Not one word has returned to you void. Everything you have spoken has been or will be accomplished. And we can trust in your word, for it is pure like silver refined in the fire seven times. And as we come this morning to hear the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, may we believe and trust in his word and find it trustworthy. For we pray this in Jesus' name and amen. You may be seated. After his I am the light of the world, a sermonette, if you will, Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees, and they challenge his claim to divinity as the Christ, and they demand proof and are arguing that he lacks witnesses in verse 13. How is anyone to believe Jesus when he makes such audacious claims? They conclude he is bearing witness about himself. And therefore, it couldn't be true, especially since it does not fit within their paradigm. Jesus, however, takes this opportunity to defend his claims with two arguments. Verse 14 through 19. First, he asserts that his testimony is true because he is aware of his mission, because he knows who he is. And we'll get into that in a moment. Second, he affirms that his testimony is validated by his own father. And, th- and therefore meets the qualifications of Scripture of a true testimony based on the witness of two people. And this exchange takes place in the treasury while Jesus is teaching in the temple. Now, although many want him gone, no one dares to arrest him as his mission is not yet complete because the hour had not yet come. And we know that hour is referring to his crucifixion. That's in verse 20. So we're going to look at this under two headings. How can we trust the word of Jesus, the testimony of Jesus, because he, we can trust his word because he knows his mission and because his father confirms his testimony. Notice that uh, saying something doesn't necessarily make it so. I'm a millionaire. Many of us have tried that. It doesn't work. Or at least that used to be true. Everyone believed a boy was a boy and couldn't change any more than a zebra could change its stripes. Now, not so much anymore. I think we we are beginning to think that we, if we do say something, it, it does change. It makes it so. But in Jesus' time, this was certainly true. You cannot just say something and have it be true. 
Just saying that you were the Messiah doesn't make you the Messiah. There were stable categories of characteristics that had been passed down for generations and generations of who the Christ would be, where he would come from, and what he would do. Saying you were the Christ didn't make it so. And that's the line of reasoning that the Pharisees use. He's bearing witness about himself. He can't be true. Verse 13. And that makes Jesus' rebuttal seem strange at first blush. He says, even if I alone bear witness, my claims are true. Even if it's just me. Even if I'm saying so myself, it is true. But then... The reasons he gives for being true create more questions than answers. He he leaves us puzzled. He says his claims are true because he knows where he is from and he knows where he's going. It's like, okay, Jesus, I'm glad you know where you're from. But how does that make you true? I know where I'm from too. But I'm not the Christ. We have to take this comment and then embed it in the larger story of this conflict. Remember earlier in chapter 7, the crowd wondered if perhaps Jesus was the Christ since the authorities were not arresting him. He's teaching in the temple. He's telling them, and remember, he was not ordained in their presbytery, and he does not use the Westminster Confession, right? And they're upset by that. They do not like it. You did not get our credentials, And yet, none of them arrest him. So the crowd wonders, maybe he is the Christ. Nobody's doing anything about him. But they quickly cast this notion aside. Why? Because they reasoned, we know where this man, Jesus, they're being kind of derogatory there, this man. They don't use his name. They just say, this man. We know this man. We know where he's from. He's from Nazareth up in the sticks. No no good thing comes from Nazareth. But when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. This is chapter 7, verse 27. It turns out that Jesus had the wrong origin story. Since they all believed he came from Galilee and not from David's Bethlehem. But it's typical of John uh, to use irony. Jesus has a divine origin that they don't know of. Remember, in chapter uh, 1, verse 14, he is from the Father, full of grace and truth. So although they think they know where Jesus is from, they don't have a clue about his real origins. But he does. He has intimate knowledge of his origins. As he said, I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Speaking of the Father in John seven twenty nine, So Jesus is circling back around to his earlier arguments to continue to add strength to the truthfulness of his testimony. He is true because he knows the Father intimately. Because he came from the Father. He's also true because he knows where he is going. Back to the Father. But by the way of the cross. He knew his mission. He knew why the Father had sent him. And that he is going where they cannot follow. So we're going to look at both of those things in the next, uh, the next uh, section of John 8. 
They earlier thought that Jesus, when he said, you cannot follow me where I'm going, they thought he was going to go into the diaspora and preach to the Greeks. But it will soon, but they will soon wonder if he is going to kill himself. But he will do neither. His name will be proclaimed among the nations and he will die. But then he will rise gloriously from the dead and ascend back to where he came from, the father's right hand. What Jesus is saying is Jesus is the self-attesting word of God because he is God. Courts generally view self-testimony as less reliable than other forms of evidence. And isn't it circular to say that Jesus is true because he says he is true? Won't that assertion just kind of collapse in on itself? The answer for John is no, not at all. Why? Because Jesus is not an ordinary man. The confusing thing about the Christ is his identity in the Old Testament was shrouded in mystery. He would be a son of David. They knew that. They knew that he would be a son of David. But something must be very unique if he is a son who is going to endure forever. None of David's sons ever lived forever. Perhaps that only meant that there would always be a Davidic king. But what about the exile? The exile proved that that wasn't the case. While in exile, the people of God begin to think that the Christ would have to be someone who actually lived forever, who was eternal. Still, there was nothing solid to pend all their speculation on. So imagine this. Imagine this scene. A glorious, bright theophany of smoke and fire appears in the temple area, in the treasury, and, he begin, and it begins to teach. And from that theophany, a voice comes and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. What would everybody's response to that bright, shining theophany be? And I'll tell you what, it will be one of fear and awe and reverence. People would be on their faces in adoration and praise. And from then on, they would follow him wherever he led them. The only difference for this scene is that God teaches veiled in human flesh. And they don't see it. They look at Jesus and they don't see God revealing himself. They see a man. They see an ordinary man from Nazareth who is making outrageous claims that are bordering on blasphemy. It would be absolutely absurd, given that first scenario, to question the Almighty God. No one would ever say to that glorious theophany, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your witness is not true. What happened when God came down on Sinai and covered the mountain with smoke? The people trembled and said, you go and talk to him. We don't want to be anywhere near his presence. They would never have talked back to him and said, we don't believe you because you're bearing witness about yourself. This gets to the crux of the problem. Who is able 
who is able to verify God's credibility? Which one of us can take God and place Him in the dock and sit in judgment on Him? But that is what they're doing to Jesus. And He's calling their bluff. Is there someone who could stand on equal ground with God? Is there such a person? What would that make God? And this illustrates the foolishness of putting God in the dock and demanding evidence that, that He is God. Remember God's response to Job? Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you. And you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you, may ha- that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like His? What does Job do? I know how foolish I've been. I will not venture to say another word. In that text we read from Isaiah 43, John is riffing off that in this section. I, I am the Lord. What did Jesus say? I am the light of the world. The great I am, veiled in human flesh, has come to shed his light on the darkness of this world to lead them out of bondage in sin and death. Into the light. Isaiah continues and says, And besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And I am God. There is no one like God. No one is able to contend with Him. No one can stand above Him or behind Him and give weight to His testimony. In fact, when he wanted to establish that his word to Abraham was trustworthy, he swore by himself, for he had no one greater to swear by. Jesus' line of argument is the same. I am the light of the world, God incarnate, and there is no other. I do not need any witnesses to verify that my word is trustworthy because I am truth as proof I know where I am from and I know where I'm going and you don't since you judge only by the flesh, by what you see. You see a man, but I am God incarnate. You should look and by faith you should see God, but you remain blind to my true identity. What becomes clear is your believing in Jesus does not make him so. He does not rely on the testimony of anyone except his Father, for he is the self-attesting Word of God, the trustworthy Word of God. And if that's not enough for you to believe in him, and to complicate things slightly, Jesus says, I am not alone in my testimony, but my Father confirms that my testimony is true. And that's the second reason that you should trust in the word, the testimony of Jesus. Because his father confirms his testimony. Notice, 
it turns out that Jesus is not alone after he's just made that rebuttal saying it doesn't matter if I'm alone because my testimony is true. But he humors them a bit. He didn't flips their reasoning on its head and he uses their own criteria of judgment, the scriptures, by quoting Deuteronomy 19.15. The testimony of two people is true. I bear witness, and my Father who sent me also bears witness, Jesus says. So you see, even in your kangaroo court, my testimony is true since my Father confirms it. But wait, I I thought God was one. The Jews have been taught from infancy to respond, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And if God alone can be in the place of this self-attesting word, then what are we to make of these two? And you can almost see the smoke pouring out of the Pharisees' ears as the gears churn, trying to make sense of what Jesus is saying. By the way, they don't figure it out. So the one self-attesting God of Scripture is both the Father and the Son. And here we want to smack the Pharisees in the head and say, didn't you read John's prologue? Because he says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Because we're all good readers, we know that. That Jesus, the Word made flesh, came from God, was with God, because the Word was God. The Father and the Son share in the same divine essence, equal in glory and deserving of worship. The Word of Christ is trustworthy because it comes sealed with the Father's approval, just as is His person. Since Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, Hebrews 1.3, He must be trusted and obeyed as such. Puzzled, puzzled as we often are at how all this works, the Pharisees demand to see His Father. Only then does Jesus level the most devastating indictment against them. You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. And this important theological point will not be clear even to the disciples until after he completes his mission and ascends back to his Father. The Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, and they are one, even as their word is one. But Jesus does not say this merely of the second person of the Trinity. We might think of, you know, the second person of the Trinity, God existed as a Trinity from all of eternity. But only at at, at the perfect point in time did God the Son come and take on flesh. Where was He before? With the Father. But we're not talking about just the second person of the Trinity without taking on flesh. We're talking about Jesus who's standing there right in front of them. He says, if you don't know me, Jesus, the flesh and blood that stands before you teaching, then you cannot know the Father. For only through the Son can you know the Father. Knowing is, it's not just intellectual. It's experiential. 
You know Jesus when you believe his testimony. The testimony that he is light and those who come to him and follow him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. For our knowledge of Jesus to be experiential means that you must not only believe that proposition is true, but you must come and dwell in the light. How can you say you know Jesus and then not do what he says? That would be easy to list off a couple of Jesus' most famous commands. Like, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Luke 6.31 Or sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Luke 18.22 Or if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 9.23 And then it would be easy for me to exhort you to examine yourself to see if your behavior aligns with Christ's call to follow him. And that would be fine. But it could miss And it often misses one important point. Obedience flows from relationship. You cannot obey what you don't love. And and, and if you love, you will follow and obey. So rather than remind you to obey, let me remind you first to love. The ethical demands of discipleship come embedded in a covenant relationship. One where God claims you as his own. He says, mine. You belong to him. He says, I am your Lord and you belong to me. And he sets his love on you and then he calls you to walk with him as he is. Holy. Be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. What's the key to all relationships? What's the glue that holds them all together? Trust. Trust. You can't have a a mutual relationship without trust. Without trust, you, you can love. You cannot love. And without love, you cannot obey. When you trust Jesus, you do so because you see that being in the light is much better than remaining in darkness. So that although obedience will be costly, you know it is worthwhile since its goal is the glory of the one you love and trust. If this knowing the Father through the Son is experiential and proceeds from trust to love and obedience, how do we grow in such experiential knowledge? Coming to know Jesus has a beginning, a middle, and an end. We talked last week about coming to to know uh, ineffectual calling and regeneration. There, the Holy Spirit removes your blinders, enabling you to see Jesus. And He gives you a new heart to trust Him and respond in love and obedience. That initial work of coming to know Jesus is all of grace. Blind people cannot will themselves to see They are blind and will remain so unless something outside of them intervenes. When the Spirit causes you to see Christ, you have the light of life that produces life. But even so, the middle of coming to know Jesus is also all of grace. 
And it corresponds to sanctification. That is the ongoing application of the benefits of Christ. His atoning death and His perfect life through the Spirit wrought union with Him in His death and resurrection. Whereas in the initial coming to Jesus, you were entirely passive. Your sanctification is an active pursuit. Where in the diligent use of God's ordinary means of grace, the reading and especially the preaching of the word, the sacraments and prayer, the communion of the saints, you are built up and established in the faith so that you progressively become more and more like Christ and less and less like your old sinful self. That is an active pursuit. And it means it is possible to be called out of darkness into light and yet drift back into the darkness of sin. God sometimes allows that. The confession says true believers may have the assurance of their salvation diverse ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted as by negligence in preserving of it, by falling into some special sin which woundeth the conscience and grieves the spirit, by some sudden or vehement temptation, or by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. Now hear me out. Sanctification is all of grace. The good works done by you result from the Spirit at work in you, which He prepared beforehand for you to walk in, and all to the praise of His glory and grace. Yet one question remains. Can Jesus say, you know neither me nor my Father to someone in that middle phase of coming to know Jesus? The answer is certainly yes. And he does that to awaken you to the reality of your current actions. Like the signs that are flashing bright and white and red that say, wrong way. You're going on the wrong way. If you're going on the right way, you don't see those signs. You see the back of them and you don't even register it. But if you're going the wrong way, you see them. That's what Jesus does to his people in allowing them to walk in darkness. You're going the wrong way. This episode is arresting because these Pharisees are dead serious about their faith. Yet nothing could be deader or blinder than they were. Sometimes Jesus comes to you in your religious sensibilities and he shakes you. He asked, you don't know me. You may ask, how will I know? How will I know if I'm, I'm in a state that I'm actively turning away from knowing Jesus? Let me cautiously suggest one way and confidently firm another. First, by examining your heart cautiously. And the second is by the internal witness of the Spirit. See, self-examination is fraught with challenges. For sometimes we see what is not there, but we often miss what is clearly there. So we chase ghosts in our sanctification. 
And we leave untouched the actual sins that are there. But we also get into trouble when we view our life as a photograph. Like one snapshot of our life. And we think, ooh, there's no way. There's no way I'm a child of God. If he saw that, that one moment, there's no way. But our lives are not a photograph, it's a movie. You're moving forward. And your beginning should not look, your end should not look like your beginning. As much as Satan will constantly surface to you your moments of sin, you must match him. As Luther said, this is from his commentary on Galatians. Luther said, let us therefore arm ourselves with these and such like sentences of the Holy Scripture that we may be able to answer the devil, accusing us and saying, Thou art a sinner, and therefore thou art damned in this way. Because thou sayest I am a sinner, therefore will I be righteous and saved. Nay, saith the devil, thou shalt be damned. No, say I, for I fly unto Christ, who hath given himself for my sins. Therefore, Satan, thou shalt not prevail against me, in that thou goest about to terrify me in setting forth all my sins, so to bring me into heaviness and distrust and despair and hatred and contempt and even to blaspheme God. But rather, in that thou sayest I'm a sinner, thou gives me all the armor and weapons against yourself, that with your own sword I may cut your throat and tread thee under my feet. For Christ died for sinners." When Satan comes to you and he says, you're, never gonna, you're not a child of God, you'll never make it, then all you have to do is look him square in the face and say, Jesus died for sinners. And you take that sword that he's trying to use against you and you slaughter him. So we must view our life, not merely in the moments, but in the whole trajectory When I survey the past 18 years of following hard after Christ, I see many moments of sin. But I also see a path that leads upwards towards greater faithfulness to God. I see that I am not once where I was. Even the sins that so gripped and eluded me are not the same as they once were. So with Paul, I can say, not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. God is not But God has not left us alone to determine whether or not we are in the light, whether our trust in Christ is leading to love and obedience. But he's also given us the internal witness of his Holy Spirit. Through our adoption as sons, we have the Holy Spirit. The Westminster Confession says this, this certainty, that is the certainty of our assurance of faith, is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation, 
and the inward evidence of those graces unto which those promises are made, the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God, which spirit is the earnest of our inheritance, whereby we are sealed to the day of redemption. How do you know that you know Jesus? Your own heart. And the Spirit Himself bears witness that you are walking in the light. That initial coming to know Jesus, followed by our sanctification and ever-growing knowledge of Jesus and His will by faith, will one day give way to sight. Then no longer will we see through a glass darkly, but we will see Jesus face to face because we will be like Him. And then we will know Jesus and His Father in ways we had never thought of before. There we will arrive at the goal of all our coming to know Jesus. Glory. And we must never lose sight of that goal since it will give motivation to all that we do until we obtain it. In this passage, we see Jesus boldly proclaiming His identity as the Son of God and the truthfulness of His testimony despite opposition and skepticism Through his confident yet compassionate responses, he demonstrates the integrity and reliability both of his word and his character. While the Pharisees focused only on appearances, they sought to trap Jesus with their questioning. Jesus cuts through their superficial analysis to the deeper reality of his divine nature and his eternal purposes. He affirms that as the Son of God who has been sent from the Father, He possesses a self-attesting authority that requires no outside validation. And no one could. And at the same time, Jesus does not leave His identity up for debate or personal interpretation. He acknowledges the heavenly witnesses that confirm who He is. That of His Father, with whom He shares the same divine glory and essence. And in so doing, he establishes the credibility and trustworthiness of his person and word. As we reflect on on this encounter, may we take to heart Jesus' call to true sight and knowledge, to see beyond surface appearances and human assumptions, and, and to understand him according to the revelation of his Father in heaven. May we respond in faith and obedience to his claims upon our life following Him as the light of the world who leads us into everlasting life. Let us put our trust fully in this self-attesting Son of God, whose Word stands forever secure. Through His reliability and integrity displayed here, may Jesus capture our hearts with His grace and truth, so that we in turn can bear faithful witness to His gospel in a watching world. To Him alone be all glory and honor now and forever. Amen. Let's pray together. O gracious Father, we are in awe of the trustworthy testimony of Your Son, Jesus, who is the great I Am, the Word that was with God, that was God, the One who has come to take us to be with you 
who has come on mission to save his people from sin. Father, we long to follow him in the light. May our hearts be wholly inclined to do just that because we trust in his word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.